There is a uh, saying that became sort of renowned a few years ago uh, by a celebrity, comedian, and host of all sorts, Steve Harvey. He was doing a uh, stand-up session at a church years ago. I think it was called, he's not through with me yet, he's not done with me yet. And so uh, a lot of people began using that phrase. He ain't done with me yet. True, he's not. But a lot of them used to use it as an excuse, as a justification for sin, for their actions that were anti-scripture, anti-Bible, anti-faith, anti-Christian. I got a friend of mine. I went to college with him, known him for years, good friend. Uh, and he would always say that my man's mouth was foul and stuff he was still doing and all of that stuff. And he would claim to be Christian, do a lot of Christianese things, uh, but was not necessarily faithful. We actually had a conversation last week, and I uh, called him out on something. Hey, man, what, bro, why are you still talking that way, man? Oh, man, God, God ain't done with me yet, brother. He's still working on me, brother. My response was, are you sure? Are you sure? According to Romans chapter 1, it does talk about he gave them over to their own lustful thoughts. Gave them over to their own sin. Because they refuted Christ. They refuted God. They went against his word. They denounced them. They didn't accept them. And so he gave them over to a reprobate mind. I don't know if that's the case for some of us in here. I don't know. Is God still working on you? Do you know he's still working on you? Only you know that. Only God knows that. And I ask that question because that's this text that we're going to go to is it talks about grace. Grace, grace, grace is free gift of grace. And oftentimes we know that we have this free gift of grace as far as we get into because the more we sin, the more the grace abounds. Because we know the very truth, sometimes we take advantage of the grace. We look at it as a... Uh, Pass. We look at it as, as a, uh, a get out of jail free card. And we don't take it seriously. And one of the issues of and dangers of preaching and talking about salvation by grace alone is that it can be interpreted again as a license to do whatever you want. In chapter 3 of this text, in verse 8, Paul mentions that some have slanderously reported that he and his followers were saying, let us do evil that good may result. Because of this misinterpretation, Paul was always on guard when he spoke about grace, this grace that pardons all of our sins. So when he said in chapter 5 of verse 20, that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. 
He knew that some would take advantage of it just like we do today. He knew that this wicked logic would be applied. Well, if we sin, well, it brings more grace, so let's sin. Huh? Let, let's have fun. Do y'all not know that his grace doesn't always abound? His mercy doesn't always abound? Yeah, Moses hit that rock the wrong way once. It was a rap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ananias and Sapphira lied to God, the Holy Spirit, once. It was a rap. What makes us think that it might not be a rap for us? Yeah, that's taking advantage of the grace. <laughs> and so he knew that they were use this and try to make some logical argument to, to say we can sin. But they did it because it was natural. Psalm 51, as Tim wrote, read for us, that we were shaped in iniquity, born into sin, natural. But also, the writer of Hebrews talks about that it is also fun. He says, it is a fleeting pleasure. Yeah. It feels good. It doesn't last long. All right. This sin. Huh. And Paul was very much aware that sinning would be twisted into some sort of religious act because it provided an opportunity for God to give his grace and love and therefore glorify himself. But even people who have claimed to be Christians have thought just like this. You might say, really, preacher? Yeah, I'm serious. We do. First Corinthians chapter five, Paul goes to this church and says, hey, y'all should remove this incestuous relationship, this couple. You had a young man, a son sleeping with his stepmother in that church. But yet they allowed it to remain because they thought, well, maybe this thing is just God's grace. It was an excellent display of Christian liberty. Sometimes we can take Christian liberty way too far. And you got to cut it off quick. Otherwise, it will spread beyond the whole body. There's another brother who was thinking like this, who claimed to be Christian. There's this historical Russian monk who taught that salvation claim, uh, came through repeated experiences of sin and repentance. He argued that because those who sin more require more forgiveness, excuse me, those who sin with unrestraint will, as they repent, experience greater joy. Therefore, it is the believer's responsibility to sin. My goodness. Today, this thinking is still common among those who wish to justify their sexual lifestyles, their ambitions. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had people present serious rationalizations to me as if they were based on Scripture. Hmm. See, Beloved, we have really no conception of the capacity for evil and wickedness that dwells in our hearts. I'm not talking about the callous hearts of a hardened criminal. I'm talking about your heart. I'm talking about my heart. There is virtually no heinous act that I am intrinsically incapable of committing. None of us. Amen. And I'm speaking as a Christian. See, what sin is there that Christians have not committed? Let me go down the list. Christians have committed murder. Christians have committed adultery. 
Christians steal. Christians lie. Christians fornicate. Christians cheat. Christians start wars. Christians have abortions. Christians create factions. Christians start divisions. Christians gossip. Christians boast in themselves. Christians are gluttonous. Christians are racist. Christians are discriminatory. Christians are arrogant. They are prideful. And Christians do all kinds of unspeakable wicked things. Y'all with me? Yeah, it's a bit heavy, ain't it? But it's the truth. And although we are regenerate and have the indwelling Holy Spirit, it does not completely remove sin. And when it is and does remove something, it doesn't always remove it immediately. That's why we are all on this progressive road of sanctification. He's doing the work. But we'll never experience that perfection until we get to the other side. See, this is why the Bible in 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, oh, my goodness, one of my favorite texts, for for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. So that we may be uh, become the righteousness of God. And so what does that mean? That means that when God looks at us as filthy and dirty as we are and sinful as we are, he doesn't see us, but he sees his son who covers us. That's what that is. So the righteousness of Christ is God's gracious way of bringing eternal life to all who believe in him as Lord. That's called grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of your work so that no one can boast. And in light of this wonderful gift of grace, I want to hang my hat on this topic this morning and talk about what's the consequences of God's grace. Let's read this text, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do we not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we, too, might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For no one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. 
for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. The consequences of grace. So when Paul said, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. He could sense the inevitable question coming and went ahead and voiced it himself. What should we say then, he says? Should we go on sitting so that grace may increase? His answer was, by no means. Absolutely not. Of course not. God forbid. Paul has no use for even the slightest insinuation that grace encourages sin. In fact, he finishes verse 2 with a question to the, to the contrary. He says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? The remainder of the chapter goes on to validate that very position. And so in verses 13, uh, 3 through 14, he answers that question. How do those of us who are under grace live without being characterized by sin? He explains that. How are we to live lives of victory? In this world, Paul answers it very logically. I want to give us three bullet points and three other sub points. He answers this first by he says, We must understand our identification with Christ. We must first understand our identification with Christ. Secondly, we must understand our dedication to Christ. And I'm sorry, there's only two bullet points right there. Identification with Christ and our dedication to Christ. First, our identification with Christ, and we'll, give, we'll get to two sub points under this. Our identification with Christ in 2 through um, 11. 2 through 11. If we are familiar with Paul's letters, if you ever read through his epistles, then you know that Paul is very much concerned about what a believer understands, what a believer knows. Because what Christians understand doctrinally and theologically is very important because it's often what dictates one's life. Often where the mind goes, the body does follow. You cut off the head, you're done. And so what we think, what we understand is very important. Paul was convinced that Christian living depends on Christian thinking. It depends on Christian learning. And that duty follows doctrine. See, this is why he often reminds them and attempts to increase and strengthen their knowledge of Christ as often as possible. That's why we do what we do here. Well, we preach Sundays and teach on Wednesdays and teach Sunday school. We're trying to, as much as we can, infuse us, pour into us the word of God, because that's the only way we can make it in this life. Amen. It's the only way we can stay strong, on the only way we can stay uplifted, the only way we can stay rooted. And with the fellowship of the saints. And so the key word I want us to focus on here, first sub point, is no. K-N-O-W. No. Paul uses this word no three times between the verses 3 through 10. First up point, no. 
He says, oh, don't you know? For we know. And for we know. Above all, Paul wants us to know or understand the nature of our identity, of our union with Christ Jesus. So to help us, he uses the powerful metaphor of, of baptism. Because for Paul, a believer being baptized symbolizes a beautiful reality. Let me read this illustration that I found right here of a pastor on the West Coast. Uh, he experienced this beautiful illustration um, when he was conducting a baptism service. It says a woman came up to him and asked him to, to baptize her nine-year-old daughter. He was reluctant to do so without finding out whether this girl uh, really understood what was happening. And so he began to question her and teach her about the reality behind the water baptism. He was gesturing as he asked, uh, as he talked to her and, and noticed that the shadow of his hand uh, as it fell on the sand because he was baptizing on the beach. What a wonderful thing, right? And so he said to the little girl, do you see the shadow of my hand in the sand? Now, that is just the shadow. I want you to understand that's, that's just a shadow. But the hand is real. And when you came to Jesus, when you believed in Jesus, that was the real baptism, professing faith. You were joined in him, and, and what happened to him happened to you. Jesus was alive, then he died, was buried, and then he arose from the dead. And that is what happened to you when you believed. He pointed to the shadow on the sand and said, when you go down in the water and are raised up again, that is the picture of what has already happened. The girl immediately caught on and said, yes, that is what I want to do because Jesus has come into my life. <laughs> and beloved, baptism is the shadow of what has already happened to us when we met Christ Jesus. It's a reflection of our conversion. It's a demonstration and an indicator of our new look and trajectory in life. See, baptism is a shadow of what happened to us and when we met Christ. Keep that in mind. And keep that in mind as we examine these next few verses, three through five. It's the shadow of what has already happened to us. So he says, no, no, you must know that. You must know that. And he says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. The overall emphasis of these verses is about the profound identity in Christ. Baptism bears the idea of identification, especially when linked to a person's name. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, tells us that the Israelites were baptized into Moses, right? It's referring not to a water baptism, but to the fact that they became united with him as they recognized his leadership and their dependence on him. So it is the same with the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. It's what we baptize us into, right? Every time you go down to the water, you say the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. The same with that name. 
we achieved this profound identification when we were baptized into that name. And so our text also emphasizes this new identity in verse 5, saying, We have become united with him. The word united pictures a branch bound together. They were grafted together. And we are grafted with Christ. That describes our union with Christ. The scriptures boldly affirm uh, this in a number of places. Galatians 3 says, For all of you were baptized into Christ." And so now you have been clothed with Christ. So close is our identification with, our identification with Christ that uh, he says that we're robed with him. He covers us. Do y'all know that he covers you? Do you walk in these streets knowing that you wear the clothes of Christ? Do you walk in these streets knowing that you have the crown of glory on your head? If you did, I wonder if it would cause us to walk a little bit differently. If it would cause us to talk a little differently. I wonder if it would cause us to think a little bit differently. And I wonder if it would cause us to relate to people differently and hang with different crowds. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> and then 1 Corinthians 12, 13 adds, For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. What greater identity our union is there than this? To state this union pretty concisely, our spiritual history, y'all, our spiritual history, our spiritual lives start at that very confession, at that very union with Christ on the cross. We were all there in a sense that in God's sight, we were joined to him. Yeah, who were who actually suffered for it? Christ did. So if we have equally sinned in Adam, which we all did because of the Adamic fall, we are all sinful and we need reconciliation. So if we have all equally died or sinned in Adam, then we have all who have confessed that Jesus is Lord. Then we have all equally died to sin with Christ. This is our position. We are identified with Christ. Know that. And the emphasis again in verse 3 through 5, that we are so strongly identified with Christ's death and resurrection that we actually uh, died with him and indeed were raised with him. So we now share also in his resurrection life. Again, the scriptures attest to this. One of my other favorite verses, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That life that I formerly used to live, I don't even live anymore. But Christ lives. And so if y'all knew me from the past, which I don't think y'all did, but if there is somebody in here, I don't know. But if you knew me from the past, if I'm still doing what I used to do, you better come check me immediately. Because I should not be living like I used to live. Because I've been born and raised in Christ Jesus. None of us should. And in Galatians 6, 14 says the world has been crucified to me and I to the world just as we died with him we are also resurrected with him since then you have been raised with Christ sit your hearts on things above sit your heart on things above where Christ is seated so the question for us are we setting our things our thoughts on things above are we sitting our hearts on things below I was just thinking about what we can get and obtain. 
all of our worldly ambitions, how to be glorified amongst ourselves in this world? Are we thinking about the things above? Holiness, righteousness, how can we glorify Christ? How can we glorify God? How can we build his kingdom? How can we be the best use of how he has made us? What are those things above? See, whereas before we had only a solidarity with Adam's sin, but that has been broken. Those of us in Christ Jesus have now a solidarity with Christ. The second Adam. In death and his resurrection. And we need to know and count on this if we are to experience victory over sin. What does that mean practically, preacher? Well, that means that. As Christ did not serve sin, then neither must we. If Christ did not serve sin, then we should neither, if we're in him. Six and seven goes on to explain that. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. The old self is the kind of person uh, we were before our conversion. The the self was crucified with Christ. The body of sin. The body as it was, was a vehicle for sin, was it not? That's what we used to do what we wanted to do. Anytime, anywhere, any place, anything. That's what we used. But that body has now been rendered defective. It is no longer useful. It's useless. It's been uh, buried down in that grave. Paul concludes this explanation of our union and deliverance in verses 8 through 10. He says, now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ has was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Paul stresses that when Christ died, he died once, and it covered all sin, past, present, and future. This is a technical term used repeatedly in the book of Hebrews to emphasize the finality of Christ's work. (laughs) We don't need anybody else. And he doesn't need to do it again. See, Paul emphasized this because the believer must have full confidence that the commander, that the captain of our soul, of our salvation, will never again come under the power of sin and death. Because if he does, all of this is in vain, y'all. We we can go home now if he has to do it again. But there was finality to his work. And we must, in order to walk in holiness, in order to pursue faithfulness to Christ, we must believe that. Man, if he did it, then I can trust it and I can walk in it. When you're dealing with the problem of those who turn grace into a license to sin, like Paul, the place to begin is knowledge. As I've already emphasized, it's it's knowledge to counter that thinking. And we must know two things about this. First, we must know our immense 
identity, our solidarity in Christ. Though we cannot fully understand it, we actually died with him and we were resurrected with him. First thing. Then second thing, that his shared death and resurrection means that the dominance of sin has been broken. Put this on your your mirror, put that on your, your refrigerator magnet or something. That we are identified with Christ and that because of the death and resurrection means that we are no longer dominated by sin because it has been broken. We are freed from it. Tell yourself that every single day, every single morning. See, the argument that we should continue in sin because we are under grace is is deceptive. It's it's foul. It's failed. It's a, a skewed way of thinking for a Christian. See, the reverse is true, though. It is possible to continue living unchanged when you become a Christian. In fact, I'll put it even stronger. Those who argue that grace allows a buffer for sin, that their sin will ultimately uh, glorify God anyway, are revealing they are not under grace. They are not Christians. No matter how much they argue otherwise. See, when we have experienced solidarity with Christ, Our lifestyle is affected just as it was by our solidarity with Adam. That's it. See, if one's life has not changed, and I'm not talking about perfection, y'all. No, don't hear that. If one life has, has not changed and their impulse for further change toward Christ hasn't, he or she may not be a Christian. Something must be different about you. You you, you cannot be identical to what you used to be. So we must know. We must know that our identity is in him. Because if you don't know it and if you don't believe it, you're going to keep thinking that your identity is in the world. And you continue to walk like the world. But how do we make this dead to sin union with Christ thing work, J.D.? Well, it has to do with the second key word of the text. The first one was to know. And the second word is consider. In verse 11, consider. I don't know what translation, your translation may say count. Consider or have to count. In the same way, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive in God in Christ Jesus in verse 11. That word, count yourselves, reckon, consider, is one of the most important words throughout the book of Romans. See, Paul uses it close to 20 times throughout the letter. If one does not know what it means or what he means by this, he or she might not understand Romans because it is a commercial term that means to impute to one's account. The idea is that we are to reflect on our position in Christ. That's what it means. Reflect on your position in Christ. Think about, consider the position you have in Christ Jesus. Have you ever taken the time to consider the fact that you participated in the events of the cross? That you and your sins were nailed to the cross with Christ? Uh, That you died with Christ? You were buried with Christ? And that you were resurrected with Christ. If you haven't, just do it. Think about it. 
We have to reflect on that. We, we really do. It's a serious matter. Because what, what I'm now talking about is this sort of um, prevention type of theology. Uh, proactive theology, taking these proactive steps to live for Christ. So much of our time is spent in doing corrective theology, uh, which is sometimes reactionary. What to do if and when you sin. Yeah, it's like we, 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 we plan to sin, and so in case I do this, I know I'm going to do that, uh, well, let me do this instead. In 1 John, uh, chapter, uh, 1 John 1, 9, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Amen. Right? Of all of our unrighteousness, he'll cleanse us. That's good. It's necessary. But reflected upon our identification with Christ uh, is even better because it curbs our sinning. It curbs our sinning. This considering and, and, and counting uh, to our account is something that we are to do constantly because it indicates uh, that we are to continue considering, continue counting, continue reflecting on our union with Christ. It's a daily battle. This is why he says... Examine yourselves daily to see whether or not you're in the faith. He says daily. Daily. It's a proactive Christian work. It is not a reactionary Christian work. To keep on counting yourselves dead to sin but alive in Christ. And so Paul has told us what we must know he, uh, about our identity in Christ. We also see why it's necessary to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive uh, to God. Now he tells us that we must act. We must act. Because theory must produce action. We can't just talk about it. We got to be about it. Why he says, just don't make us uh, hearers, but make us also doers. And so second bullet point, last bullet point is our dedication to Christ. Our dedication to Christ, 12 through 14. See, verse 12 commands, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. What does this mean? Well, Paul is precise and clear, and his answer is two-sided. First, he begins with the negative side. He says, don't do. Don't do. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin. Don't offer them as instruments to wickedness. Don't do it. There is nothing, once we are in Christ, that you should be compromising to give to sin. Nothing. Sometimes we try to make negotiations, don't we? Yeah, well, I can, you know, look, look, look at this for, you know, a few minutes, a few seconds. You know, I can, I can talk this talk, you know, for, for my boy. Nobody going to find out. He says, don't offer anything, thought, eyes, hands, feet, nothing to sin. Because you have now been bought with a price. So consider yourselves with Christ. He says, that is, do not keep on making the parts of your body available as tools of unrighteousness. Be on constant guard against doing that stuff. And then, he says, but while 
you are not doing or doing this. Here's the last sub point. We must offer. Offer. While you are doing this, he says, take positive actions. But rather offer yourselves to God. Offer yourselves. Offer all of your very being to God. All that you have. One of the things that we often neglect is once we are saved, we don't actually take the time to consider that relationship and what that means to give ourselves totally to God. Totally to God. It is way more than just giving a few hours of your Sundays to church. It's way more than just giving your hour on a Wednesday to Bible study. What does it look like? I mean, we, we talked about this. What does it mean to be a Christian in the workplace? So what we're saying is, well, he's called us to live a certain way and to be a certain way throughout our entire lives, whether we're at work, whether we're at home, whether we're in a restaurant. What does it mean to give your full self to God? And the question for you is, have you, have we given ourselves totally to God? What this tense here, this word demands, it's a decisive, very, very decisive act, which means once and for all act. That means it's a once and for all offering to God. Here I am, God. All of us must come to a time when we present everything to God for righteousness. Romans 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's your life. See, this time of surrender must come to every single one of us. And if you are in Christ, it has come to you. You got to make a decision. The time comes when we must say, God, here I am. Alive from the dead. I have died with Christ and I have been resurrected with your son. Praise your holy name. Now here is my body, Lord. Here's my arms. Here's my voice. Here's my thoughts. Here's my eyes. Here's my career. Here's my family. Here's my marriage. Here's everything I have to offer. Take them all that they might be instruments of righteousness for you and not for sin. Have we done this? And I must admit, I don't do it all the time. It is a daily discipline that we must try and cultivate. Minute by minute, hour by hour, we got to pray. We have to ask, we have to seek, we have to knock. God gives us strength for the work. Amen. Perhaps you have done the no. You've, you've, you've done the I won't be around. You've done the I won't do this. You've avoided, you tried but refusing to yield your body to the service of sin. You've done that. That is good, but it's not enough. There must be the yes. Take and use my entire life, Lord. The reasoning of the passage is compelling in, in three key words. To know, to consider, and to offer. Do we know something about our amazing unity, the solidarity, the identity in Christ, with Christ? That we actually participated in his death and resurrection. 
We may not completely understand it. I get it. But do we at least understand that the scriptures claim that it actually happened and that we are who we are? Amen. Then we have, we have to intentionally sit our account that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We got to know that. If you don't know that you are alive in Christ, you will continue to walk in deadness. You'll never know your identity. You'll, you'll, you'll never know. Uh, you never have access to, to your account. It's like having millions of dollars in a bank account that you know nothing of. It's in your name. They've, they've, they've sent you the mail. They've called you. You ain't picking up the phone. Finally, we have, we, we, we surrendered our entire lives to him. Have we surrendered our entire lives to him? If so, then we know the answer to those who argue the, that grace encourages sin. Verse 14 says, for sin shall not be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. You're under grace. That is, if you are truly in Christ, you will not be under the rule and reign of sin anymore because you are not under the law but now under grace. To be under sin means to be under the bondage of sin. The pressing weight of sin crushes you. You're shackled. The curse of the law was upon you. Previously, we were groaning under the weight of the law that no one could keep. But now, grace has come into our lives and has replaced this awful, threatening judgment of the law. And so, uh, uh, and so what's the consequences of grace? Freedom from the shackles of sin. Simple answer. Freedom. What a great consequence that is. Usually we only think of consequences of the negative. But because we're in Christ, there's a positive consequence. We have freedom. Freedom from the shackles of sin. Grace has delivered us from that old system. It has delivered us from that old man. And now grace is now what we live under. We begin the Christian life in grace. We continue to live the Christian life in grace. And the Christian life will be completed by grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing grace. This free gift of grace that none of us deserve. God, I pray that you would renew our spirit, renew our boldness, our passion for you. That we would know that we are identified with you and not with this world. And that we can live for you and trust you, God. Give us the boldness to walk in newness of life. Give us the boldness to proclaim what it is this newness of life to a dying world. And we pray, Lord, that you would use it all for your glory's sake. Use it for our good. Do it all for your good pleasure, Father. Because we know that the consequence of your grace is freedom. And may we be free in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.